The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, and 27 through 42. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days... Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You can be seated, and good morning again. Welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turned Upside Down. And as we get further and further into the book, we are seeing that wherever the apostles or the new Christian community called the church, wherever they go, they turn things upside down. They reject worldly kings and authority for Jesus's kingship and authority. They aren't greedy. They're generous. They aren't selfish. They're sacrificial. They don't act like the rest of the world acts. Today we're going to be looking at how the apostles handle being imprisoned, even beaten, for their beliefs and for their refusal to follow orders from worldly authorities when those orders run contrary to what Jesus has commanded them. So as we look more closely at our passage, we'll have three points. Courage, conviction, and confidence. And so let's begin with our first point, courage. The Bible is full of stories of courage. Noah, building the ark when no one believed that a flood was coming, Abraham leaving his home country, Moses standing up to Pharaoh and leading the Israelites out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, David fighting Goliath. 
But maybe one book with the most examples of courage is the book of Daniel. For example, you have Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Israelites who had been carried off into exile in Babylon, but who had been appointed to positions of power there. Uh, But they still faced a challenge when it was revealed that they didn't worship the golden image set up by the king of Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And that makes Nebuchadnezzar furious. And so he has the three men brought to him, and he demands that they serve and worship the golden image that he has set, set up. And if they don't, he says, he will put them in a fiery furnace. He will kill them. And so what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They demonstrate tremendous courage, and they refuse. They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from a burning, fiery furnace, and we believe that he will. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, talk about courage, standing up to the king, talking to him like that, refusing to worship his false gods, willing to face death for the sake of remaining faithful to the true God. Well, our passage in Acts 5 has a very similar dynamic and example of courage. In the beginning of our passage, in verses 17 and 18, the apostles are arrested and put in prison by the high priest and the Sadducees, by religious authorities. And if you remember from back in chapter 4, the apostles were told uh, by the religious authorities, they were told not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And in chapter 4, Peter and John said to them, Sorry, but we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. So here in chapter 5, the religious authorities are not happy that the apostles have continued to do what they asked them not to do, and so they imprison them. And we skipped some of what happens in verses 19 through 26, but essentially, when they are in prison, an angel opens the prison doors and frees the apostles, and they go back to the temple and continue to preach. And the religious leaders are like, are you kidding me? And so they arrest them again, bring them back, put them before the council, and that's where our passage picks up in verse 28. And in verse 28, uh, the priest says, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, in Jesus' name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And so this is now the third confrontation. You know, maybe initially the apostles thought that the religious leaders would relent, but clearly they won't. And maybe the religious leaders thought that the apostles would relent, but clearly they won't. And so something has to give. This is a high-tension, high-conflict moment. And from the apostles' point of view, they have to be pretty concerned for their safety, maybe even for their lives. If they keep bearing witness to Jesus, will they be harmed? Will they be killed? What would you do if you were them, if you had been told by some authority three times to stop speaking about Jesus? What would you do? Would you stop? Would you keep speaking? Would you lie to them and say you're going to stop, but then keep speaking, what would you do? Well, listen to what Peter and the apostles say in response. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. I mean, talk about courage. Right in the face of the religious authorities, they just say, no, 
I'm not going to do that. You've told us three times not to speak now. You've arrested us and arrested us again. You're probably thinking about killing us, which we actually know from verse 33 is true. But despite all that, no, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. Talk about courage. Do you know what courage is? How would you define courage? Do you recognize courage when you see it? Do you recognize instances when courage may be required of you? Well, what is courage anyway? Courage is the ability to do what's right, or to do what's good, to do what's principled in the face of pain or grief or danger or opposition or fear. It's courage is doing what's principled no matter the cost. That's courage. And, you know, there's all sorts of examples of courage. You know, the soldier who jumps on top of an enemy grenade to save the rest of his squad, or the fireman who runs toward the burning building when everyone else is running away from the burning building. That's probably what we think of when we think of courage. But do you recognize instances when courage may be required of you? You might be tempted to think that because you're not a soldier or a fireman or a whatever— that you don't really need to be too courageous. You don't have opportunities to exercise courage. But if you're a Christian, just enduring this life faithfully, courage will be required of you sometimes. You know, day to day, week to week, in your regular life, persevering to the end. You see that courage isn't just for soldiers and firemen. Courage is for regular Christians like us. And courage is going to be required of you sometimes, maybe even often. You know, is there someone in your life that you love and care for who is continually doing things that are harmful for them or harmful for others? You know, substance abuse or self-isolation, drunkenness, sexual addiction, whatever. Is there someone like that in your life who you say nothing to about it because you're worried that they'll get angry? Or you're worried that that conversation will be awkward. There is an opportunity for courage. Saying nothing is a little bit cowardly, but saying something in love is courageous. Or parents, you need courage just to parent, right? You, know, you need to tell your children no sometimes for their own good, even if it means that they're going to throw a fit. I mean, I'm already dreading this, but there will come a day when our daughter wants a smartphone and social media accounts. And based on what we know about how destructive those are for the brains and mental health of teenagers, you can imagine, I can already imagine that fight now and I'm dreading it. But based on what we already know, we're probably going to have to say no to her for a time. But all my friends have one. I'll be a social outcast if I don't. And she's not going to want to hear from me that I'm okay if she's a socially awkward teenager, if it means she's less likely to be a depressed 20-something. That conversation is going to require courage to stand our ground for a time. That's what parenting requires, courage to stand up to our kids for what's best for them. Then, of course, just being a Christian in your public life is going to require courage. I mean, it's already difficult today, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's just going to get harder and less popular to be a Christian and to practice Christianity. 
There will be practices and principles and values and morals that you have, but society insists more and more that you should abandon or hide as a Christian. And you know what they are. I probably don't need to list them out. And when that happens, you can act cowardly and acquiesce, or you can act courageously and say, no, we must obey God and not men. Just like Peter and the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. The Christian life will require courage, courage just like the apostles had. Now, where did they get that courage? How were they time and time again able to face disapproval, persecution, even death, yet maintain their principles? Where did that courage come from? That takes us to our second point, conviction. Let's see, has it been long enough since I used Hamilton as an illustration? I think so. In the musical Hamilton, there is a contrast drawn between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. Hamilton is decisive and opinionated. He's always speaking his mind. He's always acting on his beliefs. But Aaron Burr, on the other hand, he keeps his cards close to his chest. You know, nobody really knows what Aaron Burr thinks or if he believes in anything at all. And in the musical, this difference reaches a climax when Hamilton endorses his political rival, Thomas Jefferson, over Aaron Burr in a presidential election. And what Hamilton says is that even though he's never agreed with Thomas Jefferson once, Thomas Jefferson has beliefs. Aaron has none. Jefferson has opinions. Burr has none. Jefferson has convictions. Burr has none. And a person without convictions is a dangerous person. What underlies the courage of the apostles in the face of persecution? Conviction. Their firmly held beliefs, their faith. Remember Hebrews 11.1 1 from our By Faith sermon series. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction. That's what underlies courage, conviction. To have courage, you must have conviction about something. And so what did Peter and the apostles have conviction about? Verses 30 through 32 the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. The apostles have convictions that God raised Jesus up from the dead, that God has exalted Jesus as leader and savior, that repentance and forgiveness of sins is now available, that he's given them a purpose, that he's called them to something, that they're to be his witnesses. They have a conviction of his forgiveness. They have a conviction of their purpose and their calling to bear witness. And so one part of that purpose, one part of that calling for the apostles is preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And it's important that they explicitly mentioned that God has given repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel because the religious authorities, the Jewish leaders, Israel's leaders, they're not happy that the apostles keep accusing them of killing Jesus, of killing God, even though that's exactly what they did. You know, the religious leaders say in verse 28, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
Right? They're worried that they're going to be condemned by the people or whoever. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And that's actually true. The apostles do intend to bring Jesus' blood upon them, but they don't intend to bring it upon them so that they can be condemned. They intend to bring Jesus' blood upon them so that they can be forgiven, so that they can be cleansed by it, so that they can be purified by it. If only they would repent. If only they would receive the apostles' message. Because Jesus has died and resurrected and ascended, repentance and forgiveness of sins is available to everyone, even the religious leaders and Roman officials who themselves crucified Jesus. Jesus' blood can cover their sins too, because Jesus' blood can cover anyone's sins. The apostles were convinced that that message was true, and they were convinced that it was their purpose and their calling to declare it, to be Jesus' witnesses. That's the conviction that the apostles had. And that conviction is how they had the courage to face disapproval or persecution or even death. If God raised Jesus from the dead, if he ascended up to heaven, if in Jesus there is forgiveness through repentance, if this movement has just begun, if it's of God, if Jesus has called us to this task, then we must continue to teach in Jesus' name. We must obey God rather than men. We must do what he's called us to do. That's the conviction that allows the apostles to courageously face anything as they continue to witness for Jesus. Do you have conviction? Do you have convictions? What are your convictions? You know, if you realized during the previous point that you rarely act with courage, it may be because you lack conviction. It's hard, maybe impossible, to have courage without conviction. And have you noticed how rare courage is today? You know, I think one reason that uh, President Zelensky in Ukraine has been so inspirational is because for the first time, at least in my lifetime, I'm seeing true courage from a world leader. You know, normally, presidents and prime ministers and chancellors, nowadays at least, they're so calculated. They only take steps that seem nearly risk-free or have predictable outcomes. They, they let others take the fall for mistakes. But Zelensky has time and time again acted with courage. The U.S. offered to fly him out of Kiev, and he said, no, I'm going to stay. If I leave, my country is going to fall, but if I stay, there's a chance that we will survive. I mean, it's incredible, right? You just don't see courage like that today. Courage like that is so rare. And one reason that courage is so rare nowadays, I think, is because people have fewer and fewer convictions. More and more, the ultimate value that people in our society pursue is freedom. But the way that we tend to conceive of freedom in our society uh, the way we think about it is very neutral. It's not a freedom toward anything. It's freedom from everything. Freedom from convictions, honestly. We're all a lot more like Aaron Burr than Alexander Hamilton in that regard. There's often no direction to people's conception of freedom. There's no guiding light. There's no North Star. It's just neutral, stagnant. That's our idea of freedom. So let me ask you again, do you have conviction do you have any convictions about anything? What are they? Like, what is your purpose in life? Do you have purpose? 
Do you have any conviction regarding your purpose? Or what gifts has God given you specifically, and how are you called to use them for his kingdom? Do you have conviction about your calling? What's your purpose? What's your calling? Is it just to maintain the status quo? To play it safe? To uh, accumulate wealth so you can retire early? What's the point of all this? Before God, what's your conviction of your purpose and your calling? Is there anything worth being courageous for? What about your collective calling as a church in Fremont and the Tri-Cities? Do you have any conviction about why we exist? What are we here for? Is it just to belong to a social circle? Is it in case you need a pastor? Is it because you heard that you should go to church? Or do you exist for something more than that? Something worth committing yourself to? Something worth sacrificing for? Something worth exercising courage for? What are your convictions? What's worth being courageous for? Now, you might be thinking, that's the apostles. Of course they could be courageous. Of course they had convictions. They're super Christians. I'm just a regular person. I could never do that. Well, you're wrong. You can with God's help. And that takes us to our final point, confidence. You know, I grew up playing recreational soccer, and uh, each year I would be placed on a team randomly with other kids from my hometown and my age group, and one year I was put on a team with a really good soccer player named Wayne. And he was probably the best player in the league, honestly, but Wayne didn't make it to every game. He made most of them, but not every game. And the games that he didn't make it, we would always be a bit deflated. How are we going to beat this team without Wayne? Without Wayne, we're just an average team. But when Wayne did make games, we felt like we could beat anyone. We might be the best team in the league when Wayne is playing. Whenever Wayne is on the field, we felt like we had a really good chance of winning. We played better, I think, just because we knew that he was there that day. You know, Wayne is on our team. He's on our side. He's in the same jersey as us. And so we had confidence, and it showed. In our passage, there is a notable speech by a Pharisee named Gamaliel about where true confidence can be found. Now, Gamaliel was a teacher of the law, and he was held in honor by all the people. And we also learn later in Acts that he was the mentor of another Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. But listen to what Gamaliel says in his speech, starting in verse 35. Men of Israel, Take care what you are about to do with these men, for before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan... For this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to oppose God. If this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you won't be able to overthrow them. What Gamaliel points out is that there have been other movements sparked by charismatic figures. He mentions two, 
Thutis and Judas the Galilean, not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. And he points out that while these men were able to rise up and draw a large number of followers, after they died, their movements died with them. They came to nothing, their followers scattered. If Jesus is another fake, if Jesus is not the Messiah, if Jesus is not God, then the movement that the apostles are starting will quickly come to nothing. The people will scatter, it will die, just like it always has. If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail, so let these men go. What do you have to lose if their plan is based on falsehoods? As you say that it is, it will come to nothing. But on the other hand, if it isn't based on a falsehood, if it isn't of man, if it actually is of God, then nothing we do will be able to stop them. In fact, we might find ourselves opposing God, and we don't want to do that, do we? So let's take a hands-off approach and just see what happens. Pretty wise. In that moment, that was a good call on Gamaliel's part. Let's see what comes of this. And in the years to come, when Acts was eventually written, and for us today even, Gamaliel's speech is even more than wise. It's prophetic. Because what do we know now? We know that Jesus' following did not come to nothing. It's going strong 2,000 years later, and it's the largest faith in the world. We know that Jesus' following didn't scatter and disappear. They grew. They spread to nearly every nation and people group in the world. You're living proof right here, right now which means that the plan or undertaking of the apostles was not of man. It was of God, and if it's of God, it will not fail. No one will be able to overthrow it. That's our confidence. This thing we're doing, this faith that we believe in, the church we belong to, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not of man. It's of God, and if it's of God, it will not fail. It cannot be overthrown. That's your confidence. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Who can condemn? No one. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you can have confidence. You can have conviction. You can have courage because you have not opposed God but aligned yourself with him. And no one can stand against God and he won't let anyone stand against you. Your most dangerous enemies are sin and death, and Jesus has already defeated them. The worst thing that can happen to you is that you die, and Jesus has already undone death and will undo yours too. If you know that, then you can face anything. You can face anything now. You can have confidence now. You can hold on to your convictions. You can have courage now. You know, it's probably just going to get more and more difficult to remain a faithful Christian and endure to the end in our society. In America. This isn't the case everywhere in the world. The church is exploding in Africa and Asia and South America, but here in the West, in North America, there's a winnowing, a reconsolidation going on. Christians in name only are checking out. The days of significant and widespread Christian influence on culture and society are waning. So you're going to need courage, conviction, and confidence more and more. Go with the flow, passive, ambivalent Christianity is not going to persevere. It's not going to endure. But thankfully, Jesus freely offers all the resources you need for confidence, conviction, and courage. You don't have to muster them up yourself. In fact, you can't. That would be a plan or undertaking of man, which will fail. 
But if you receive God's grace, Jesus' grace, Jesus' mercy, Jesus' good news, Jesus' words, Jesus' truth, if you are of God, and you are, he created you, his spirit dwells within you, his blood covers you, if you are of God, then you can't be overthrown. You have everything you need. You have the only thing you need. You have Jesus. And actually, it's the other way around. Jesus has you. And so the harder things get, the more attacks you feel, the shakier the ground you're standing on seems to be, keep coming back to Jesus. He is your confidence. He is your conviction. He is your courage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we admit all the ways that our courage and conviction and confidence is shaky. Father, point us more and more to Christ. Give us power through your Holy Spirit and forgive us for all the times that we will inevitably fail to be courageous. Father, we love you and we pray this all in your son's name. Amen.